With this digital certificate, we aim to help uh, member states reinstate um, the freedom of movement in a safe, responsible and trusted manner. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announcing plans to move forward with a digital certificate that would allow for safe movement around the EU for people who can prove they've been vaccinated or can prove they're COVID-free. The Commission doesn't want to call it a vaccine passport, but you can bet that's what it will be called anyway. And of course, for it to work, you need to have lots of people who've actually been vaccinated. And that's where the EU continues to struggle. We've had two big developments on that front in the past few days. Many EU countries have suspended the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine as a precaution after reports of blood clotting, even though the EU's own medicines agency and the World Health Organization have both indicated it's okay to keep using the jab. And the EU has threatened to stop vaccine exports to countries such as the UK that it doesn't believe are trading fairly and freely when it comes to vaccines. If we have a look at the epidemiological situation, it is getting worse. And we know that we need to accelerate the vaccination rates. And this is why we need to ensure that there is reciprocity and proportionality. If the situation does not change, we will have to reflect on how to make exports to vaccine-producing countries dependent on their level of openness. We'll debate all of that in just a moment with our podcast panel, as well as follow up on the results of the regional elections last weekend in Germany and this week's general election in the Netherlands. We'll also take a deep dive into COVID-19 disinformation and the challenges policymakers and tech platforms face when trying to combat it. But first, let's get to that podcast panel. So the band is back together. First of all, welcome Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. And it's a warm welcome back in the UK to Annabelle Dixon. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. We're so, so happy she's back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Now, of course, since Annabelle was last with us, the whole Brexit thing has got very real. And so as we focus on the EU, that means we won't be talking about the UK every week. But this seems like a very good week to be talking about both the EU and the UK, because those kind of political worlds, which sometimes seem increasingly separate, have collided this week in, in a couple of ways. The EU is suing the UK, alleging it's not respecting the Brexit deal, particularly with regard to goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. But we've also had a big fuss about vaccines and about particularly the export of vaccines from the EU. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen pretty much saying we're getting nothing from the UK. Meanwhile, we're sending all these vaccines the other way and this needs to change and, and threatening export curbs. Annabel, how is this being perceived in the UK? Well, I th the Brexit supporting papers are just loving it. They're in their element um, that the Daily Mail this morning declared that it was a Stalinist threat to seize factories and block exports. So I think it's very useful for them to sort of have this point of tension and, and portray the EU as this very protectionist bloc. And so it goes back to that, that point, you know, that Boris Johnson really feels like 
he's been vindicated. But it was interesting, I was speaking to, to someone who knows him very well, definitely as a, you know, a Tory. And he was saying, Boris Johnson is the luckiest politician there's ever been. Because even the Conservatives acknowledged, you know, there's a huge amount of luck. And the way that von der Leyen's handled this and the EU's handled this and, and the sort of internal disputes and the delays has been manna from heaven for Boris Johnson. Mm. Right, there's, there's two things going on here which kind of overlap, uh, particularly around the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, AstraZeneca is not delivering what it originally said it would for the EU. Meanwhile, the UK seems to have been able to power ahead. So that's causing a lot of tension and leading to this discussion about export bans. But at the same time, we also have had a big drama this week around the suspension of the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine within uh, much of the European Union. And, you know, we've got different scientific opinions at play here. There's also quite a lot of politics at play here. Reem, how much do you think politics is, is playing into this decision, which we should say is, is complex and none of us are virologists, but lots of politicians are clearly involved here too, and they're not virologists either, right? So what do you make of it? I think it's a very tough question to answer. What we do know is that there is something called the precautionary principle in Europe, and it is extremely important in France, which is that political leaders have a responsibility to take every precaution possible to protect people. They have to err on the side of caution when it comes to anything related to medicine. There is undoubtedly a higher level of risk aversion in Europe, in the EU, than in a country like the US or even the UK. And you are seeing this very much play out very publicly right now. And what's been very interesting is this question of trust is really central. So the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, gave authorization to AstraZeneca. But early on, we saw quite a lot of questions being asked by local authorities, whether it's, you know, the German ones or the French one, on whether AstraZeneca was effective on the seniors, on people who are older than 65. And then they went back on that. And now we're faced with this issue of blood clots. And what to me struck me over the past two weeks is that the French health minister, who is himself a doctor, was asked about this exactly last week. And he said, there is no proof that people who got the vaccine are more prone to getting these blood clots. But four days later, the president came out, Macron, and said, well, we're suspending out of an abundance of caution, and we're waiting for the EMA to get back to us on what they think the deal is. And the EMA, we're recording this Thursday, the EMA is supposed to give its new guidance today, even though over the past three days, they have repeatedly said so far, they have no evidence to connect both the vaccine and blood clots. Right. But one thing that you picked up in your reporting, right, is that there was a political element to this kind of cascade of decisions, right, that once some countries started making this decision to suspend, it was difficult for many others to continue. They felt they almost had to do that to avoid being asked, why aren't you doing what the Germans are doing? Right? A French minister told me this that evening, the evening where Macron announced that they were suspending AstraZeneca. When I asked him about this, he said, listen, it was just not tenable to continue not suspending AstraZeneca with the Germans suspending it. We didn't want to go through three days of controversy and 24-7 debates in France on whether the French had done it right by not suspending. And so they suspended. But then I had this discussion with Elysee folks, and they said that that conversation had been ongoing between the various leaders 
throughout the weekend, and then the Germans went ahead and suspended, but the French were already thinking of suspending. Now, where does the truth lie? That is something that is a work in progress. It certainly means there's, there was a political dialogue about this, right? It's not purely scientists kind of deciding among themselves. But what I mean is that by political is that they're not making this decision because they want to take vengeance on Brexit. They're making this decision because of the precautionary principle right. that they have to live by. Right, and we may hear from Annabelle in a moment that it's being portrayed rather differently in the UK. But Matt, what, what do you make of it all? Look, I mean, I think it is extremely political. I think that the reason that they're delaying is not out of a sense of caution because they don't know what the hell they're doing. And that's been clear from the very beginning. I mean, you know, the French talk about trust. Trust has been completely shattered here. You know, it might not have been motivated by some sort of anti-British sentiment. I think it was just a result of their total incompetence on this, which they've shown from the beginning. And it's not going to end well. I mean, Annabelle talked about Boris Johnson and luck. Well, you know, you make your luck. And he's shown that. He's shown real leadership here. And I think it's no surprise that this is being seen as a total vindication of Brexit in the UK. This is the single most important decision any leader in Europe has made in years regarding the vaccine, I would argue, because thousands of lives are on the line. And if you look at the countries that are doing well here, they've saved lives. This decision this week to suspend AstraZeneca again, that's actually going to cost more lives because it means more people won't be getting the vaccine. And I'm not a virologist. As you said, I just play one on this <laughs> yeah. podcast. Yeah. It just seems to me to be a huge, huge mistake. The Germans are already regretting it. Some countries didn't do it. A little alpine country south of here decided not to follow suit. Well, Belgium uh, didn't do it either. Belgium didn't to be do fair it. To the Belgians. They've got their own problems. <laughs> so has the alpine country. <laughs> I think that uh, this is going to just really further erode trust in the EU's handling of this entire mess. But here's my question, though. How can we explain such incompetence? And how can we explain such bad decision making on something that was clearly over the past year, everyone knew that this vaccine situation is the only thing that will matter at the end, because it is the only way to get out of lockdowns that cost not only psychological damage, but economic damage and hold back an entire society? How do people like Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron botch it so bad? I can tell you from, from the German perspective, I think a big reason is, is that the country is run largely by lawyers. And these are people who are, by their training, are very cautious. It's the precautionary principle. They look at everything that can go wrong, and they are not risk takers, which is much more of an Anglo-American approach, I would say, to things. And that's how we've ended up here. So that's, that's the thing that was interesting, because at the end of January, Macron tells me he is very admirative of the US warp speed approach, and of the risk taking that was involved. And he kind of regrets that the Europeans don't take risk this way, uh, and don't trust the science this much. I asked one of his advisors this week, well, where is that spirit of risk-taking when he suspends AstraZeneca this way? 
And he tried as he could to spin it as, well, no, this is about risk and, and mm. being true to the science by, by letting scientists... I think it's being true to the bureaucracy, to be honest, and, and just being true to all the, the, the regulations. There's obviously the case of vaccine skepticism as well, right? And how much, whether suspending or not suspending, fuels but that. that hasn't even played into that here. You know, I, I mean, that hasn't played in, at least in Germany, to the degree that, that people thought. I mean, if you look at the polling now, you've got well over 70% of Germans saying that they are willing to get the vaccine, which is much more than at the beginning in early January. It's different in France, I think, Reem, right? In France... Unfortunately, this week, obviously, trust in AstraZeneca has collapsed. We are at 20% of French people who would take AstraZeneca compared to 52% who would take Pfizer. So this is now a problem with AstraZeneca. Let's bring in, I think we might need to bring in Matt, uh, Annabelle, actually, to, to not exactly defend the EU, but maybe give us a reality check on the UK. Enjoying their freedom, <laughs> enjoying their freedom over there. <laughs> what do you make of what you're hearing from, from your old friends here that you haven't, that you've missed so much? I bet, I bet you've really missed this. This is just extraordinary. I've come back, it's like listening to the Leave campaign, anti-lawyer <laughs> rhetoric. We've had enough of experts. <laughs> it's really extraordinary. I mean, the, the government piled in a lot of money behind AstraZeneca and they've really gone for it on the vaccines. And we haven't had vaccine hesitancy in the same way that we've seen in the EU. I mean, it does exist, but definitely not in the same way that we've seen on the continent. And, I'm, you know, that probably is partly leadership, you know, that Certainly, and he fast-tracked approval, right? Which was, I yeah. think, a, a big element here. It's put yeah. them a few weeks ahead, right? Which was helpful, I guess. Yeah, and then they and they signed exactly. their deal earlier, which is another factor. Well, it's put the U.S., it put Israel, you know, put some countries a couple months ahead. Mm. I mean, this is the thing. There's a gamble, right? There's a trade-off, and it could have gone horribly wrong, and it didn't. And also, in terms of betting on which vaccine was going to be ready first, you don't know which one's going to be ready yeah. first. Yeah, right? but what, what's the real risk? I mean, you've got so many people dying now and dying as a result of, you know, the fact that these vaccines haven't been available. Right, that's the calculation. But And the chances are, in retrospect, it's going to look right, like the right call until there really is a problem identified. But sweeping things under the carpet is never a good idea. And now, in the moment, Boris Johnson is reaping the rewards it, it looks like he's going to do really well in local elections coming up everyone's talking of this vaccine bounce all these older people who've had their vaccines who are going to go and put their cross in the box next to the conservatives so politically it's great but i guess in a few years down the line if there are problems sweeping things under the carpet is never a good idea Okay. Well, I think we'll, we will we'll headline this uh, this section. I'm not a virologist, but and uh, let people <laughs> to, to draw their own conclusions. But Matt, I think you wanted to also circle back on something that we previewed last week, the uh, German regional elections, and just give us uh, your take on those on those votes and and what they mean for the the national picture. Well, they've really thrown everything into disarray here for the Christian Democrats for Angela Merkel's party because the CDU did much worse even than people had anticipated. They weren't expected to necessarily win these elections, but it really showed that amid this corruption scandal that they're facing now, that their support is collapsing. And the big question is, will they be able to regroup over the next six months before the national election at the end of September? If they can't, you could be looking at a government in Germany that doesn't include the Conservatives, which would be the first time we've seen that in 16 years. So this is one definitely to keep an eye on. Okay. 
Great. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. Reem, Matt and Annabelle, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And since we recorded the panel, the European Medicines Agency has reconfirmed its view that countries should continue to use the AstraZeneca vaccine. And we'll see in the coming hours, days, whether European officials across the block follow that advice. Okay, so Matt brought us up to speed with the German regional elections. Let's talk about another election now, the Dutch general election, which took place over several days this week, culminating on Wednesday. And I'm joined to talk about it by our reporter, Elina Schaat. Hi, Elina. Hi. So give us the, the kind of top headline from the election. What's the main story to come out of it? The main story is that Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte is going to return for a fourth term. He's from the centre-right VVD party, sits with the Renew Europe, the Liberals in the European Parliament. And it seems he's going to have 35, 36 seats, which is quite a big share, actually a huge share, considering that there are 17 parties with at least one seat and only four parties have more than 10 seats. Right. And there's 150 seats in the Parliament. So he's in clear first place. He's in the position to form a coalition, the current uh, coalition is a four-party one. Do we have any indication, you know, yet what kind of coalition might might come out of this election? Last night, the other big surprise of the evening is the big win of the other, but more socially liberal party, D66. They came in second. So it is going to be very likely that the VVD, Mark Rutte's party and D66 are going to take the lead in trying to form a coalition. Rutte has already said that he would love to have the Christian Democrats involved again, led by Finance Minister Wopke Hoekstra, but they took quite a big hit last night. And even if the Christian Democrats would join, they still would have only just a majority or not a majority. So they will have to get a fourth party in. And there it's going to be really interesting and difficult because D66 is much more green-minded than the other parties. So they might be more keen to get either Volt, which is a pan-European party that had a really big win, uh, three to four seats, first time running. D66 might also want to talk to the Green Left or the Labour Party. Left took a really big hit in general, but it makes sense for... D66 to have another green-minded, more socially orientated party around the table. Mm. Well, one of the interesting things, as you say, Aileen, is you, you have these parties that are very strongly in favour of the European Union, uh, like D66, like Volt. We also had the far right doing well, although being more fragmented than, than previously. What kind of government might emerge here and how might that change its approach to the EU? Before, D66 was also in the coalition, but more as a smaller partner with the VVD and Wopke Hoekstra, uh, sort of the leader of this Frugal 4 group, taking the lead. So the real question is, is that going to make a difference? And it's also been a theme that was highlighted throughout the campaign by some political analysts, is that Europe wasn't very much talked about, although it's going to be very important for the next coalition. For example, Rutte has said that the recovery package was a one-time deal, it's not going to happen again. But already some politicians and economists have hinted at that it's going to be impossible. Sorry, when you say impossible, they mean like, how do they mean impossible? Well, that 
the question is is it gonna is this one time recovery package gonna be enough or would we need another package which Rutte and Huxa has said will absolutely not happen mm. so we could see you know a country which was yeah very reluctant to have uh, joint borrowing to finance grants for the recovery fund perhaps at least part of a new coalition pushing to be more open to that idea or or accepting that they think it's it's necessary maybe one final one as you say the big surprise of the night was d66 doing so well the pollsters didn't seem to pick it up we had this defining image of, of the party leader karg on a table dancing uh, which um doesn't match always with our picture of Dutch exuberance. So I think that's maybe partly why it's such an impact. But what are the kind of initial explanations as to why they did so well and why the pollsters didn't pick it up? I think it was a big surprise because she only took over as the campaign leader six months ago and she had a bit of a rocky start. But she's been really strong in the last couple of debates. She stood up against far-right politician Geert Wilders in one of the final debates earlier this week and it seems from initial research it seems that a lot of the new voters that voted on D66 came from the left and also a lot of uh, young new voters that or voters that didn't vote before. Interesting. Okay, we'll follow the coalition formation process and uh, we know that normally takes a while, so maybe we'll check back in with you when it looks like there's a result. Yeah, last time it was a record 200-something days, so let's hope it's not going to happen this time. Okay, thanks a lot, Eileen. You're welcome. And we'll be back in just a moment with a fascinating look at a big problem related to the pandemic, disinformation. Stay with us. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for policy professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. From financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more, Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu. Can garlic or vitamin C cure coronavirus? No. Does the virus only infect old people? No. But we have all seen these or other false claims online or on social media. There is an increasing number of fake news about the coronavirus outbreak that are circulating, in particular online. The coronavirus has challenged nearly every aspect of society, including the information we share and the news we consume. As you heard, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen outlining nearly a year ago in March 2020. Fast forward to March 2021, and while many aspects of life have slowed down under lockdowns and restrictions, the spread of disinformation has actually sped up. To get a better handle on the problem and what tech and lawmakers are trying to do about it, we've brought in Mark Scott, Politico's own chief technology correspondent and author of the new weekly newsletter, The Digital Bridge. Hi, Mark. Hi, Andrew. How are you? 
Good, thanks. Thanks for joining us. So, of course, disinformation predates the coronavirus. It didn't arrive with the pandemic, but policymakers seemed acutely aware of exactly how dangerous this mix of disinformation and coronavirus could be. And they demanded that big tech companies step up to combat this. So the question for you, Mark, is have they risen to the challenge? What sort of measures have they put in place to deal with this? I think when you look at the platforms and it's all the mainstream ones here, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter, they have done more in the last year than I ever thought they would. They previously had pushed back significantly about moderating content because they see them, they had seen themselves as neutral platforms where anyone could do what they want. That has significantly changed. So they've taken down millions collectively of posts. They have labeled things that they thought were uh, incorrect with, you know, factual fact-checking labels. They've worked with member state governments and the WHO and other international organizations to promote public health messaging. The issue that they and the policymakers are finding is that it hasn't stopped the wave of mistruths getting through. And that's mostly because as much as these companies have billions at their disposal, a lot of this stuff is just so prevalent it's almost impossible to really take a good whack at it purely because you take down one post, it'll pop up somewhere else with another three. And therefore it is an issue of whack-a-mole over the last 12 months, which frankly hasn't really worked. Mm. So you've examined thousands of online posts, videos, messages, really, you know, had a deep dive into all of this stuff. Quickly just give us a a sense of of your recent reporting, what you've found. Sure. So we've had the recent one year anniversary when the WHO officially called this whole thing a pandemic. And so I use that as a a time peg to really just go deep dive into TikTok videos and Facebook posts, etc. I also teamed up with some academics from King's College London and the University of Amsterdam to specifically look at how a lot of this content, although has been banned from Facebook, YouTube and Twitter, is getting back onto these networks. And one in particular was a pretty striking thing where we found that all these banned videos were making it back onto these mainstream platforms via quite obscure and fringe other social networks. And what was happening is you have a lot of these banned videos popping up in these fringe networks. And then people often coordinatedly were taking these videos of these fringe networks and putting them back onto Facebook, for example. And therefore we found a lot of this stuff was getting through the net, even though the platforms have promised and frankly have done a pretty good job at taking down some of this content. A lot of it is still getting through. Here is one of the academics, Emily, from the University of Amsterdam, who helped work on part of the disinformation project that I just published. We can think of moderation as being less restricted to a single platform, but to many other platforms, to a wider pattern of dissemination of prohibited contents. I mean, I think it's a bit like pollution. You know, it's difficult to say that it will remain in a single single national frontiers. I think it will keep on sort of being disseminate it and, and travel elsewhere and then come back again and so on and so forth. That was Emily de Coulinar of the University of Amsterdam. And Mark, there's a big international component here, right? A transatlantic component. Tell us more about that. So it's not just a COVID question. In the last 12, 18 months, disinformation, tricksters is maybe a, too a nice way of putting them, but people who delve into disinformation, they've been trying to create cross-border networks so they can share memes, messaging, content, etc., from, say, Germany to France, but also France to the United States. And what's happened quite recently within the COVID world is that a lot of the disinformation that is quite sophisticated around anti-vaccines that is coming from the US is migrating itself over to Europe 
often by via Canada, which it, sort of English gets translated into French, and then the French moves over to France and then gets picked up that way. And so what we're finding a lot now is those viral anti-vax messages coming from the United States are making their way over to Europe, being picked up and being run with, often politicized. So for example, in Germany, that's also mixing with sort of a weird quasi-QAnon community that's popped up. And for the, those on, who don't know what QAnon is, it's a quite strange conspiracy theory saying that there's a global effort to undermine Donald Trump. And yet in Germany, that's been picked up quite significantly and linked with also with anti-vax. So it's quite nefarious. To give a greater sense of exactly what that means, I spoke with Sheen Labay, the managing editor of Europe at NewsGuard, an analytics firm that tracks misinformation about the transatlantic dimension. Here's what she had to say. 2020 really proved that disinformation has no borders and can travel really quickly across the globe. One reason for that is that misinformation sites read one another. They translate one another. There is a, a big network internationally of all these websites. So we've seen, for example, purveyors of COVID-19 disinformation of anti-vaccine false claims being translated into other languages and gain popularity in Europe that way. Okay, and Mark, can you give us any uh, specific examples there? There's one specific example that was quite worrying uh, recently was Sheen and her team were tracking anti-vax messaging coming from Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a nephew of the late U.S. President John F. Kennedy, who was banned from Instagram for promoting COVID-19 falsehoods. Last summer in Berlin, he gave a big speech. That speech was translated into German, uh, Italian, French, published on many misinformation sites in these countries. At the same time, uh, his organization, Children's Health Defense, was launching a European chapter and targeting European audiences with content published in local languages. And so these two processes combined made that now you have a lot of claims from his organizations on vaccine being spread on misinformation sites in Europe. What you sometimes see is that there is a little local touch that's added with a local voice, a local expert that's inserted. And how do these tech companies defend a decision like that to remove people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. from their platforms? We've, we've obviously seen this happen with Donald Trump being removed from Twitter. That created, you know, quite an outcry in some quarters. You know, is there a risk that tech companies are taking things too far? There, there certainly is. So I think there is a balance to be struck here between legitimate yet potentially incorrect information being put out there because you just don't know any better. And platforms are trying to take steps to keep people safe. So I think it is a balance. Right now, it's a question if they're doing it well enough. And who decides? You know, like, I guess the question is, if you do get banned, do you have any recourse? Because I mean, this is obviously a lot of the, this is a huge amount of power to basically silence people on, on these very powerful networks. Exactly. And, and then, frankly, Facebook has taken the step to create this sort of outside Supreme Court, so-called Supreme Court to, to make these decisions. And they're actually going to rule on the Trump ban probably in the next couple of weeks. So I think it is a question of who does get decided, particularly around political leaders making political speeches. I think that is, is that is an open question. Mark, is there anything we can say about the motivation of the people who are creating and, and spreading this information? That's one thing that just strikes me. Who's doing it? And I know that's a you know, there's lots of different answers to that. But also why are they doing it? We need to divide things into two categories. There is something called misinformation, which is me just putting up things by accident because I, I, I saw it and I want to promote it, even though there's no nefarious underlying reason to do so. So there's, that's one element. I think on the disinformation front, 
there are a variety of actors. Some of them are political. So you have political groups trying to promote a sort of, you know, don't believe the current government. So it's a kind of anti-establishment message that they're trying. Very much so. And that that, that taps into say, the last 12 to 24 months of anti-establishment type activity across all of Europe and elsewhere. I think on the anti-vaccine stuff, I think is the more important and frankly more political mostly because they have been well coordinated on and offline for years particularly in places like Italy and France and they have a very purpose message around the anti-vaccine stuff around COVID because it plays into their larger wheelhouse of don't trust vaccines and so my concern around the anti-vaccine stuff is it's very sophisticated and they have a larger global political message as in don't take vaccines and I think that frankly is the COVID crisis has given them a platform that, frankly, has been a godsend because this is their shtick mm. and they're running with it. Do, and I mean, this is a hard one, but do they believe this stuff or are they deliberately sp- spreading what they know to be falsehoods? I think people believe it. I mean, because it fits into your worldview. But there, there is some state-based actors, particularly when it comes to the Chinese and Russians and what they're doing around the Western vaccines. I mean, those are geopolitical and commercial decisions they're making to say don't trust Pfizer take Sputnik or maybe AstraZeneca in in, in recent days but I, I think that those are more geopolitical but I think when it comes to the, the domestic homegrown actors that's where we should be focusing our attention and frankly with the German elections coming up with the French elections next year this is going to play a, a big part in that and if they decide to weaponize that by politicizing it say don't trust Macron because he promoted vaccines, that could have a serious effect next year's election in France. Mm, That's really interesting. So it seems like after all of these efforts, banning videos, tweaking algorithms and all the rest to highlight accurate information and sources, this is still a big problem. So is that fair to say? And where do policymakers, particularly in the EU, go from here? To be honest, I think about this a lot. I think it's very easy to for the policymakers to just blame the platforms for not doing enough. Yeah, it's true they are not doing enough, but it's not like they haven't done anything. There's also a role for policymakers to, you know, frankly, get off their asses and, and pass some laws if they don't like this. Uh, that hasn't happened, although, frankly, the Europeans are doing more than, than others. I th- also think it's a, a question we should be asking ourselves as people who look at social media a lot. Yes, we also are part of this problem, and maybe we should not just believe everything we see on our Twitter feed or Facebook news feed before we start throwing shade either at the policymakers or the companies themselves. Mm. And is there any one platform or country that's managed to do this particularly well to get things right? And then are there any lessons that uh, others can draw from what they've done? So I think we need to look at the the Finns and what they've done. Even very early on in the COVID crisis, that they sort of tapped a lot of domestic Finnish influences and that they were used sort of to promote public health messaging on social media to their millions of followers. And that was quite useful. The Swedes have also spent years, frankly, investing a lot in digital media literacy for kids from, say, three to five upwards. There's also starting to pay dividends, although that is a very long term problem. But to be honest, this problem isn't going to go away. And I don't think anyone, be it a platform or country, has done a good enough job, frankly, in, in really mitigating some of these problems. OK, Mark, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks so much. Thank you. And as mentioned, be sure to subscribe to Mark's new newsletter, The Digital Bridge, which looks at the digital relationship between critical power centres around the globe. 
And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can always email us your feedback or ideas. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.